century ago when uh, the Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung was working on his theories of human personality, he developed a concept that most of us, for better or for worse, take for granted today. It was the theory of what he called introversion and extroversion. A lot of his theory was based on this idea that some people are characterized by more inward, self-directed concerns, while others are more outward with social-directed concerns. We tend to use those terms, introvert generally, someone who is shy, withdrawing, if you will, extrovert, someone more gregarious and, and outgoing. In the Bible, we see people with different personalities, uh, clearly who display different attributes, although scripture does not teach that you and I are locked in rigid categories, as if we are hardwired from birth to have a specific personality that is unchangeable, especially when it comes to areas like introversion and extroversion. In fact, I think as, as scripture speaks to the human heart, it more often than not speaks about change and the ability for God to transform us and to change us from the way that we are into being more like Christ and having the perfect balance and being able to do introspection and be outgoing and, and loving. In fact, as you look at sort of biblical categories on these things, the introverted, extroverted, there's probably things that are both edifying and, and also sinful about those different qualities. I, when we do communion together, we often read from 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight: 28, a man ought to examine himself before he um, takes the elements. That, that would be sort of that self-directed, but it's for a purpose. We examine ourselves. Paul repeats that in 2 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians 13. Galatians 6, that we ought to examine our works. So there is some call to that. And yet the, the popular notion of what an introvert would be would probably run contrary to Scripture, sort of the self-centered aloofness that pushes people away, keeps them at arm's distance, won't let them get too close. A Christian who is content in that sort of isolation is, is not in a good place. In one sense, we are called to be extroverted. The, the, the very mandate of the Great Commission says we are to have contact with people. We are to make disciples, and therefore we are to have contact with unbelievers in proclaiming the gospel. And certainly as believers, we are to have contact with one another, having contact with other believers that we can encourage and exhort, and, and allowing other believers to have a window in on us that they can help us and serve us. If you lack that, if you go days or, or weeks without having conversations with others about Christ or, or even talking to someone else about their walk with Christ, then it would seem like something's missing. Something very crucial is missing. I'd like you to look at Acts chapter 20. The New Testament repeatedly speaks of this other orientation, this emphasis on others, looking out for the needs of others, all of the, the, the multiple commands, the one another commands, as we call them. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul puts it this way, let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So the pattern of Christ is came to serve, not to be served. And so that other orientation is, is there in our Savior. That's what he directs us to do as we love God. We love neighbor by actively serving them. In Acts chapter 20, this is what we commonly refer to as Paul's farewell message to the elders from Ephesus. And in it, I think we clearly see this orientation, what it looks like to serve others, but more importantly, what the driving force, the impetus is behind that. 
When we last left off in Acts 20, two weeks ago, we were reading about Paul boarding a ship that would take him to Jerusalem. It is the spring, probably around the year 57. He is trying to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost, which would have been in late May, and so he is eager to be there. He believes this is where God is leading him, Jerusalem, and then ultimately on to Rome. And so this ship is going around the western coast of the region of Asia, stopping in at different port cities along the way to load and unload passengers and cargo, and the, they stop in Miletus and uh, we see it here, we'll pick up in verse 17 of Acts chapter 20. Now from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable in teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again." That last line is, is why we look at this as his farewell message when he says, I, I don't expect to see you again. This is, this is it. This is our parting goodbye. And it's, it's not doom and gloom at this point. This is not so much Paul saying, I'm, I'm going to die, and, and that's why I'm never going to see you again. He, he says this really for, for two reasons. One is that he understands, as, as the Spirit has been indicating to him, that, that there is imprisonment awaiting him, and so free travel back to a place like Asia, probably is going to be ruled out. But, but more importantly is the fact that he has spent now several years in this region, largely in Ephesus, but around the region, establishing the church there. And, and, and in Paul's mind, it is time now to move to Rome. It is time, if, if the Lord would allow to go on to Spain, it is time to go on to areas where the gospel has perhaps not yet been proclaimed. And so he is saying farewell. Not so much again with the sense that he's, he's about to die, but that he will not be back in this region of Asia again. So he's in Miletus. It's about 25 miles south of Ephesus. Um, it was not feasible for Paul to go and visit Ephesus. The, the, no doubt the ship has tied up in port. It's there for several days. They're loading, unloading cargo. Um, to, to go back to Ephesus at that point, he knows there's at least two hindrances to that. Either he's going to get held there by foes who, who want to detain him in some way or arrest him, or he's going to get detained by the church if he goes back to Ephesus. The believers there are going to say, stay with us longer, and, and it's just going to carry out the journey that much longer. And so Paul sends for the elders instead, and the Ephesian elders come down to him and meet him in Miletus. And he's going to give them a very specific charge, and we'll look at the charge next week, at, at how he instructs them as, as elders. But, but within this message to them, he is, he is exhorting them on the basis somewhat of his own example. This is Paul saying, if you will, guys, if, if you took anything from me from the last 
three years here, here's what I hope it is. Here in summation is what I, I hope you saw, what I hope you captured. And he's just sort of summing that up and exhorting them by way of it. And there's also an aspect to this that's, that's somewhat of defense of his ministry. There's some sort of a, a apologetic sort of itinerary here in the, in the sense that Paul's already been questioned. There's already been um, opponents who have slandered him and who have challenged his ministry and even people within churches like in Corinth that have come up against him and, and made lies about him. And so there's a little bit of defensiveness in some respect, mostly for the the call of the ministry and the gospel. It's not Paul being defensive for his own um, personality or emotions. But, but in this part of the speech, I, I, I think we get, and, and by the way, this is the, the longest uh, discourse spoken speech to believers in the book of Acts. Most of the, what we've seen are sermons that are intended for unbelievers proclaiming the gospel. This is the longest interaction where somebody is now speaking. One of the, the lead speakers is speaking to a group of believers. In the course of this, he gives to us, as followers of Christ, a short course in what it means to live for others, to, to have an other orientation about our lives and why, why we are to be that way. So if you go back with me to verse 18 again, when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Here's verse two, these, these two go together. If we are going to be directed toward others, if we're gonna have an others sort of orientation to our living, then that will come first from living before others, that is in the presence of others, in the sight of others, and living with others, being around them, spending time with them. Before is the idea of, of what we would call today transparency, being transparent in front of other people, and, and that couples with being with them, spending time with them. Strong emphasis here on his proximity. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. You know me. How so, Paul? Because I was with you. Because I lived life in front of you. Because I, I went through the day-to-day -day in your presence right alongside you. You saw how I responded to situations. Paul intentionally sought to make his life an open book. He, he was okay with allowing people to see him in the good moments and the bad ones since he was intentional about not withdrawing from his brothers and sisters, the very people that he served, they could watch his life and see how he dealt with circumstances, how, how he responded to situations. This is how we know, for better or for worse, that there was sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas because that happened in front of the believers. They were able to watch Paul and Barnabas engage back in Antioch when the discussion was over John Mark. This is how we know that Paul confronted Peter, when he writes about it in Galatia and, and, and Peter's hypocrisy that he calls out, because Paul lived this out in front of them. This is how we know that Paul despaired of life itself at points, that he went through moments of, of discouragement, of, of wondering what would happen next. This is how we know that he cried out repeatedly for God to remove the thorn in his flesh when he tells us at the end of 2 Corinthians, I pleaded with God three times that he would remove this. Because he was living life before, in front of, and with 
the body of Christ. He wasn't standing in some place and running some ministry from over here and, and just sending out emails or you know, sending out some kind of message that everybody should read or listen to or something like that. He, he ministered among them. When it came to his character and his holiness, Paul could certainly stand firm against his critics. When necessary, he, he defended the gospel. He defended his character as a proclaimer of the gospel. That was important. But when it came to Paul's awareness and admission of his own sin and weakness, there was nothing to hide. There was no sense on his part of, that's a, that's a piece of my life that I don't want others to see. Paul didn't feel the need to conceal that. The fact that he was once a blasphemer and a persecutor of the church. Uh, famous words that he wrote in 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. It, 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 it's his willingness to say, you can watch my life. You can see, because I'm, I'm living among you. And so he can emphatically say to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you, because that's what he did. He lived with them. He, he ministered openly to them. He had meals with them. He spent time with them. He shared with them. He faced adversity with them. You name it. It's doing life together. And it remains the model for us. It's what we try, at least on a small scale, to, to do here at Grace when we do home groups ministry. That, that part of the emphasis there is to, to, to bring people just another venue where you're a little closer together and another opportunity for you to, to, to let your life be more open in front of brothers and sisters in Christ who will pray for you and care for you. How many believers outside of your close family really know you? How many could say, yep, I know your life, I know your story, I have a pretty good idea when you're hurting, I can, I can probably tell. I, I, I have some ideas of where, where your weaknesses are, where those areas are that maybe you're most vulnerable to temptation. If your answer is apart from immediate family, there's really no one, then that's not a good place to be. The, the, the call in Scripture, the model in Scripture is that we we be able to, to be in and among God's people. We live life with them and before them. All right. He says that to them, that you know how I lived among you. Verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Take three more of these sort of other orientations to life, how we live in an other direction, um, and, and, and they're all here in verses 19 and 20. We need to defer to others. We should be brokenhearted, compassionate for others, and we should be willing to suffer for others. First one, the, the defer is, is sort of the obvious one. We, we understand what humility is. And he says in verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility. It's that basic Christ-like principle of I, I consider your interests above even mine. If, if there's a way that I can serve you, if there's a way that I can, I, I can submit my own to your desires, I'm going to seek to do that. I want to know how to help you and to come alongside you. And so I, want to, I would like to learn your preferences in ways that I can, I can minister to you. That's, that's humility. It counts the other person with importance and value, and it shows that by virtue of our actions. Second thing here is when he says serving with tears. I, I think what he's talking about here 
is tears in terms of grief for those who are being threatened or harmed in some way, particularly under some form of spiritual attack. And, and the reason I say that is because it's, it's not just here, but it's the, the, the other references where he talks about tears seem to all point back to, to this kind of grief. In fact, if you look down at verse 29, this is when he's speaking to the Ephesian elders. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. The, the flow of tears in verse 31 is directly related back to the potential for attacks on the church at Ephesus. He's saying that this, this is going to happen. There will be wolves who will come. And that's why as I served you, I ministered night and day with tears. His, his compassion for them was for their well-being, not just for their physical health, but, but really for their spiritual well-being as, as sheep. And he is concerned for them. 2 Corinthians 2 and Philippians 3 are the other places where he speaks of shedding tears. And in, in both instances, it has to do with either grievous sin, disunity that is potentially creeping into the body, or danger from false teachers. And, and, and that is what's causing grief in Paul's spirit, is that the body of Christ, brothers and sisters, are being attacked in a spiritual way, either by false teachers or, or sin or whatever. And, 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 and what he's showing us is, he doesn't, when these things happen, he doesn't just kind of shrug his shoulders and go, well, that's kind of how it is, you know? We're just a bunch of sinners, and, and I guess that's going to happen. There rather is a sense of grief in his soul because he sees the local body of believers as Jesus described for us, and that is as sheep in need of a shepherd, as those who are to be tenderly cared for and diligently protected and, and to be the objects of compassion. And that's what Paul is describing here when he says, I've served you with tears. It's not, not just tears at physical pain, nothing wrong with tears over physical pain and, and suffering and persecution and those things, but it's tears of, of brokenhearted compassion in, in the sense of, Brothers and sisters who are caught in sin, who are ensnared, who are struggling, disunity that's creeping in, problems and, and corruption and false teaching and things that are, are slipping into the church, that's, that's what grieves him. Do you, do you grieve when there are threats to the body of Christ, when there are threats to the unity of the body? Do you weep when someone who professed faith in Christ now seems to just be ensnared in unrepentant sin, and they are going off on a path that just seems so destructive. Does it, does it grieve you? The, the temptation for us in these moments, let's be honest, is to get impatient and angry and frustrated at these things, but there should be a sense of grief and compassion because we understand that there is an active enemy out there. When, when those who are thought to be leaders in the Christian church fall into sin when those who are prominent in their roles in the church, uh, we begin to find out things that, that suddenly we realize they, they weren't what we thought they were. Do we, do we have compassion toward younger believers who are struggling and who looked up to that, that pastor, that writer, that speaker who were equipped and encouraged by that person and now that person has fallen? Do we grieve for them? Do we come alongside them? Do we serve them with tears? 
within the Christian church, it, it, it feels like there are potential flashpoints for division everywhere we look. But Ephesians chapter 4 says, you and I are responsible to bear with one another in love, to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And when that's lacking, we should grieve that. We should weep that, that anything short of that is acceptable. Third one he says here in verse 19 is to be willing to suffer for one another. He talks in terms of trials. Serve the Lord with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. And he talks about not shrinking back from declaring to them anything profitable, teaching and, and then testifying of repentance from sin and faith in Christ. Paul served the Lord with trials. Twice in this message, verse 20 and verse 27, he says, I did not shrink back. The Greek word that he uses there for shrink back was also used in nautical language to, to describe the bringing down of the sails. When you brought the sails in, you might do that if you were in an area where you were concerned about enemies or piracy. And so bringing the sails down might be a way of being less noticeable out on the horizon. And so you would, you would furl them down. You would, you would shrink them back, if you will. Paul is using that language here to say, despite all of the, the hostility both threatened and real, despite all that, that I've endured, despite the threats of being cut off and imprisoned and, and beaten, I did not pull down the sails. I did not shrink the message. I, I, I did not pull back from proclaiming the full counsel of the word of God. Verse 21 says he kept preaching repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ, even when it riled those up who would have rather he just pulled back and withdrew and shut his mouth. And Paul says, I will not. I didn't shrink back. He didn't stop telling the lost that they were guilty sinners who needed Jesus Christ and salvation through the gospel. And he continued to preach hard truths to his fellow believers. The, the relationship the Apostle Paul had with the church at Corinth is a case study in saying hard things to, to brothers and sisters in Christ and, and just this back and forth sort of pleading and urging them even in the face of hostility and criticism from them at points. I mean, we, we've got it in First and Second Corinthians. We've already seen as we've talked through Acts that there were, there were other letters, there was other visits, there was more that went on in Corinth that we, we don't even really know about. And a lot of it was was difficult, and it, it, it involved Paul having to say hard things to the Corinthians about immorality and tolerating sin and, and divisiveness in their midst. And yet, he trusted in the authority of the Word of God to say, this, this is what the Lord says, and I'm going to keep speaking this truth to you because I love you, and I am serving the Lord, and I am serving you by speaking truth. This is the same Paul who would eventually, from prison in Rome, write to Timothy when Timothy was likely still back in Ephesus in 2 Timothy 4 and say, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. He went on from there and he told Timothy, therefore, you better be sober-minded and you better be ready to suffer. 
that, that suffering will come as you fulfill this mandate. Most in the world are not eager to hear God's truth. They're not anxiously waiting for somebody to come and proclaim the fact that they are sinners who need a savior. And even among those who profess faith in Christ, we all know because we've been there at one time or another, we're not always eager to have God's word spoken to us by brothers and sisters in Christ when it is bringing conviction, when it is speaking to an area where we are struggling and where we are having struggles with sin and they come and they, they bring God's word to bear and there's times that we just didn't want to hear that. We don't want the word of God brought to bear in, in that sort of convicting way. Yet we are still called to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. We're still called to be willing to suffer rejection, to be pushed away, to be pushed back, because we will proclaim God's truth and not pull in the sails. In this age of tolerance, the gospel is a bold, unwavering declaration of God's truth for every person, and it offends. The, the ministry of the cross offends, and there are, there are implications of the gospel concerning morality, holiness, Justice, integrity, implications of what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ, the everyday stuff of biblical truth that the world also finds intolerable. You want to tell me how to get to heaven? Okay, I'm interested in hearing about heaven. I'm interested in hearing about Jesus who loves me and, and wants to bless me. But I don't want all the, the rest of that stuff that's sort of implied in what you believe this, this old book says. And, and they find that intolerable. We are not to be afraid to speak Christ. Remember what happened with Stephen? Stephen loves his Jewish brethren. He's been going to synagogue with, with, with these brothers and sisters. And, and he's there to say to them, hey, I found the one who sets us free from the curse of the law. He recites all that history to say the Messiah has come in Acts chapter 7. And he proclaims Jesus Christ is the way and is willing to suffer in order to tell them the truth. And you know how that went, Acts 7, 7.57, but they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him and, and they proceeded to kill Stephen. Stephen was willing to suffer. I, I don't know if any of us in our lifetimes will face actual threats of violence for speaking the truth, but if we are genuinely convinced that this gospel of Jesus Christ is the only hope for every man and woman, that this is the only way of salvation, that this is the only Savior, this is the only way of life and forgiveness and joy and peace, then we can't roll down the sails. For the glory of God, we need to continue to be out there and we need to continue to proclaim these things and not shrink back from them because we are convinced this is God's truth. There's one more thing, verse 21 when it says he's testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And I would say it's this, in this other-oriented life, we must not discriminate against others. There's a propensity here. We've been through the book of Acts this far to sort of see Jews and Greeks as he's just talking about the Jews and the Gentiles and, and just sort of covering the whole spectrum. But, but that minimizes the, the gap that existed, the ethnic gap that existed between Jews and Gentiles and the fact that, that in many ways they had been raised to despise each other, to look down on each other, and to have nothing to do with each other except for whatever they, they sort of had to tolerate. And, and, and so Luke is making the point here 
that Paul did not discriminate in his proclamation of the gospel. That, 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 that wasn't, he, he wasn't picking his audiences based on who he liked and who he wanted to hang around with. He preached all because all need forgiveness. All need to repent. All need Christ. The, the body of Christ should be the single most diverse assembly of people on the face of the earth who genuinely love and serve each other wholeheartedly. We should be the most magnificent display of what it means to bring together people of every background and every ethnicity and every social class and every level of economic class and bring them together in a way that they genuinely want to be with each other and serve each other and love each other. We should model that and our neighbors should see that because we know the truth that God has made all in his image. Every man and woman is made in the likeness of the creator, and it is his desire that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. And therefore, our neighbors should get from us as believers in Jesus Christ the most unique displays of love and mercy and justice and kindness and grace than they get from any other neighbors. They should see in us something that is inexplicable because it is so otherworldly because we're demonstrating to them Christ-like love and justice and mercy and care. All right, so what drives all this? What's, what's, the, what's the motivating force behind living this other-oriented sort of life in the presence of others and with others and deferring to them and weeping for them and so on? Verse 22, And now behold... I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God." What drives living for others in this kind of sacrificial, gracious sort of way? This kind of life begins when I finally come to grips with the truth that my life is not my own. It belongs to Jesus Christ. It's basic truth. We sing it. We speak of it. But if you're like me, this, it, it's still convicting every time I read these things because it reminds me again, it goes against my flesh and my inner desires that say, I, I got this, I, I want to do what I want to do, and yet my life is not my own. It belongs to Christ. The Spirit of God is, is giving Paul insight into his future as it describes here in, in verses 22 and 23 probably in a way that he does not specifically promise to all of his children. We should not, this is a descriptive passage. We shouldn't take this as, as sort of an assurance that, that the Holy Spirit will always do what he did with Paul in terms of giving us specific forewarnings of danger that lies ahead. Doesn't always work exactly the same way. We have the word of God and that's where the, the spirit speaks to us. Clearly, what, what Paul is getting here is, is the work of the Spirit in a unique way as, as an apostle. It would seem to be, as he's describing here, as he's going from city to city, and he's encountering believers in one city after another, one after another is saying, Paul, I, I don't know what to do with this, but, 
but the Spirit has impressed upon me in some way that there is, there is nothing but trouble waiting for you in Jerusalem. There is imprisonment and there is hardship of some kind. I don't know what to make of that. I don't know what you want to do with that, but that's what I believe I'm, I'm, I'm called to tell you. And, and so that's when he says about in each of the cities, he keeps getting warned about this. In some way, the Spirit is testifying that there is more ahead. One commentator writes, the Holy Spirit was both the driving force to undertake this journey and the source of revelation about its dangerous outcome. The Holy Spirit is constraining Paul. He is moving Paul in a direction that at the same time the Holy Spirit is confirming will lead you toward further imprisonment and suffering. Paul knew that his life belonged to Christ. When he says he is constrained or, or bound by the Spirit, it's just another way of saying he is bound to Christ. The Holy Spirit is the one who, who ministers to us, who mediates to us the, the presence of Jesus Christ. And this is Paul, again, understanding that, yes, he is moving toward danger, but he is bound to Christ. His life is not his own. He belongs to Christ, and this is the direction in which Christ is calling him. I, I think it's helpful, though, to, to pause here, because I, I do think there's times when we look at Paul and we go, well, Paul was just kind of a, he was one of those, Superman kind of guys, you know? He's just one of those man's man, you know, who could just walk into the face of danger. And, and that's Paul, that's not me. I'm, I'm a little more timid. And that's, that's sort of Paul's personality, right? Well, when, when Paul was in Corinth, back when he wintered in Corinth on this same journey, when he wrote Romans, look at what he writes to the Romans at the end in Romans 15, verse 30. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. Remember, that's where he's headed. It's Judea and Jerusalem. And here's Paul, knowing that he is being compelled by the Spirit knowing that there is danger ahead in Jerusalem, saying to his fellow believers, I'm asking you to labor with me in prayer, to strive with me that God would somehow deliver me from the unbelievers, from those who want to imprison me, those who want to harm me in some way. He, he's not, this isn't like some, some just push forward blind kind of suicide mission. Paul didn't long to be arrested and, and beaten and imprisoned. He wasn't looking forward to that. In, in fact, he's, writing it to the Romans, and I have to believe sharing it with believers face-to-face -face all throughout his ministry, I want you to pray for me. You've just shared with me that you think that what the Spirit is impressing on you is imprisonment. I'm praying for deliverance. I'm praying that God would somehow overrule that or in some way that I would be delivered from these people because it is his longing to still continue to press on. And yet, and yet, having heard all that, that point at which one of those stops when, when I know, I don't know about him, I know me, I, I would be tempted at one of those stops to say, you know, maybe, maybe it would be cool to just spend the summer here in this city and we could help build the church here and we don't have to rush back to Jerusalem right at this point. And yet he persists because he believes the Holy Spirit is leading him into this. this is, the, the key in all this is Paul is not willing to be timid. He's not willing to pull in the sails from preaching the truth or traveling to Jerusalem because of this conviction that his life is not his own. God has given him the purpose of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the reason that he spent these last three years in Asia and has traveled on over into Macedonia and down into to, to Corinth, it was to, to do just that, 
to preach Christ. And so now he is going back to Jerusalem with an offering gift to give to those people. And then he is setting sail for Rome, if the Lord will allow, because he's going to preach Christ there because his life is not his own. It belongs to Christ. He is determined to finish well, to do what Christ gave him to do, to take the responsibility that Christ has given him to proclaim the truth. Self-preservation is not his calling. One of the old catechisms from 400 years ago asks the question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? In death, excuse me. We could, we, could, we could sing this, and we will actually in just a few minutes as I read this. My only comfort is that I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins, and redeemed me from all the power of the devil. Yeah. Friends, this is, this is not some personal conviction of a guy named Paul who just sort of held to this radical kind of lifestyle. This is not some level of self-sacrifice that is, that is set for the bar of, of sort of high-level elite sort of Christians. This is not the calling that, that just applies to missionaries and those who go out into difficult places or to apostles like Paul. This is who we are called to be as believers in Jesus Christ, to love God and love neighbor and to be oriented toward others that's willing to serve and suffer for them because our lives are not our own. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. We are to flee worldly temptation, and we are to deny the, the fleshly desires and lusts and yield instead to the Spirit and be willing to suffer for Christ because of that reason. We've been bought. We, we belong to a Savior who gave his life and shed his blood to ransom us from sin so that he would save us and make us his own and give us the glorious task of telling others about him and, and helping to rescue them in some way from the curse of sin and lead them to Christ. That, that, that I think is the key for Paul, just, just as it is for us. This is what we have in common with Paul. You may... Time and time again feel like, oh man, he, he's just over here and I, I just can't. Paul is following the very same example that you and I are following, Christ. We have the same model before us, who is Jesus Christ. And that's who he's calling us to follow. This is not heroizing Paul in some way. That's why toward the end of this chapter, one of the things Paul will use as a, as a defense against the, the charge that he was you know, out for money is, is, is he says, I worked hard. I worked hard with my hands. I did that first so that you couldn't say that about me. I, I supported myself, and, and so I always worked when I was in cities. But then he also says, I also worked hard because I wanted to have money that I earned that I could contribute to the saints, that I could give to others in need. Remember, he's traveling about. One of the things he's doing is he's collecting offerings to take back to the beleaguered saints in Jerusalem. And Paul's saying, and I worked hard too so I could be a part of that, so I could give to that. But the interesting thing is, verse 35 he says at the end, in all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And then he says, and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. There it is again. At the heart of this, it's not all about Paul. Paul is, is, is doing what he's been doing since the beginning, and he's pointing back to Christ. Why do I suffer this way? Why, why do I proclaim this way? Why do I work hard with my hands? Because Christ said so. 
because this is what Jesus has instructed us to do. And I am simply following Christ. My life is not my own. It belongs to him. This is, this is the theme of, of this whole section. And in fact, he started with it and we read over it quickly, but I just want you to see it again. Remember back in verse 18, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility, tears, trials. We've been talking about how he's been other-oriented, serving others, but Paul understands that what he's doing is serving the Lord. I, I am here to do what Christ has called me to do, and in that I am serving you. And, and we often, I think, we lose something in our translation here of the Greek doulos, which is the word that is often servant, or the verb form serving. It, it, in, in the Greek, it was the idea of a slave. It was someone who was owned, someone who was bought with a price. It, it, we, we think serving, we think putting food out on the table at dinner or going to the restaurant and the waiter or the waitress, and they are serving in some way. When Paul uses this in the Greek, that language is strong. It literally meant to be owned by another. It is service rendered for the benefit of someone else to whom I belong. That's what drives this this core belief that I have a master who, who, who gave up and left behind the riches and glory and majesty of heaven and who came to earth to stand in my place and take my sin, sinless and spotless, and yet took my sin on himself that he might suffer and die in my place and bear God's wrath for me so that he now could give back to me Life. He could make me his own. And so the, the very best life I can have now is to glorify him. It is to magnify him. It is to live for him. Even if that means humble service or potential suffering, there is no greater opportunity that you and I have than to daily keep the sails flying high, proclaim the truth, live selflessly, care for others, love them, serve them, defer to them, proclaim Christ to them, give them hope. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, uh, we are so thankful for your setting before us the, the perfect example as you came as the Son of God in flesh, dwelt among men, experienced temptation, experienced hardship and weakness, all to follow the will of your Father and to give your life as a ransom for us. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that that was not done just purely as an example, but was done for the the ability to, to honor and glorify your Father, and then to, to purchase us, to buy our redemption and to rescue us from out of slavery to sin and death, such that we now belong to you. Our lives are not only hidden with you on high, but they, they are yours. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us as we wrestle with some of the conviction of passages like this and help us to confess the areas where we have been so quick to grab life, to, to 
cling to what we want to do and put our desires above yours. Lord, we thank you that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. And so we, we ask for the, the good, real, convicting work of your spirit to help us see those areas in which we are trying to cling to something that is less than the majesty and glory of what you have for us. Lord, help us to, to live for you this week. Father, I pray that if there's anyone listening this morning who is not trusting alone in Jesus Christ, that they would understand that this, this driving, compelling influence that caused Paul and other believers throughout history and, and should equally impel us to, to speak the gospel, that it is because the, the truth of the message is so amazing that you, Jesus Christ, died for sinners and rose again, and that all who will turn from their sin and believe in you will find forgiveness and eternal life forevermore. Lord, thank you that you have bought us. May you help us this week through your spirit to be faithful servants who will live for you, who will love our neighbors, who will serve them and care for them in, in unique and caring and just and loving ways. We love you and we thank you for the hope we have in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.